Well, good morning. Go ahead and open to your, your Bible to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 11, verses 1 through 11. And we are going to look at uh, a very familiar story, which is titled probably in your Bible, The Triumphal Entry. And I've titled this today, The King Has Come. Uh, as we look at Mark, chapter 11, verses 1 through 11 this morning, I want us to actually put our fingers there and then go back to chapter 1 into verses 14 and 15. Uh, these two verses, I think, are super important for us to really understand not just what we're going to look at today, but into the entire context of Mark's gospel. So in verse 14 of chapter 1, it says, Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. Jesus, he came preaching the gospel, or we could say the good news, of what, uh, of what God was bringing to this world. And what is the gospel according to Jesus in verse 15? Well, Jesus said the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. Now, these verses, I think they kind of act like a, a definition in the dictionary where it uses the same word to define the word that you just looked up which I find rather uh, annoying. But Jesus came preaching this gospel in verse 14, and then in verse 15, he says to believe in that gospel. So what do we do with the redundancy of the gospel without having a defined definition of what the gospel is? Well, I think these verses, again, set up the entire book of Mark, the entire gospel of Mark. So we read Mark with the intent of discovering what Jesus means by good news. What does Jesus mean by this gospel? What does he mean to believe in this gospel? So we do learn something from verse 15. That the time is fulfilled, or we could say that the time has come, or that there's been a completion of something that was promised. And this completion is what Jesus will be defining throughout his life, throughout even the text in which we'll look at today. Jesus tells us that the kingdom of God is here. And as we look through Mark's gospel, we see what that means as we see Jesus teaching and healing people, and people even like blind Bartimaeus from what we saw last week. Jesus ends verse 15 with the command to repent and believe in the gospel. This was a command. It was not an optional phrase that he gave to people. There, there was not some uh, other way that he would recommend, he says, no, repent and believe, which means that as we look through Mark's account, we discover what Jesus means by the kingdom of God here, which we see that Jesus is referring really to himself in that statement. We have a decision to make in regards to the command that Jesus now gives us. If Jesus is bringing the kingdom, if the kingdom of God and the gospel is referring to Jesus, then when he makes this statement of repent and believe in the gospel, we have to make a decision with what to do with that. Either we do what he has told us to do, which is to reject our sin and our practices that we have believed to, to be acceptable, and we believe in this good news or the gospel. But again, the question is, what is the gospel? If you have been with us through the first 10 chapters in Mark, you've seen and heard that Jesus, 
he is the good news. He is the gospel. He is referring to himself in chapter 1. And again, we've seen this through 10 chapters so far, uh, through different events and different moments and the different proclamations that are made of Jesus or by him himself. So as we look at chapter 11 this morning, verses 1 through 11, we see that there are crowds of people saying that they believe that the kingdom of God has arrived. They believe really what Jesus said back in verse 15 of chapter 1. These crowds, they're, they're excited that Jesus has come into Jerusalem where they have an expectation of him. They have an expectation of him being their savior and being their king. But as we will see through chapters 11 through 15, that they really had misconceptions about what that even means. It is a very real possibility that even today, you might have misconceptions about Jesus. And this good news that he said he was bringing, we might have misconceptions about what that good news is. What is that gospel? So without any further introduction, let's get into the text this morning. So go back to chapter 11, starting in verse 1. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it, and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at, at, the, at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said. And they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Now, the triumphal entry, as probably what your Bible has titled it, the triumphal entry is one of those events that's so important to the storyline of Jesus that all four of the gospel accounts, the gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they all include this event. Jesus and his followers are making their way into Jerusalem. And why are they coming into Jerusalem? Well, it's for the Passover. Passover was the celebration of God leading his people out of Egypt. In the leading of his people out of Egypt, God is peeling back the fingers of Pharaoh's grasp on the Israelites through the ten plagues that he inflicts upon Egypt. And finally, Pharaoh relents and lets the people go and then, of course, we know the story. Pharaoh then chases uh, the people of Israel and, and the crossing the Red Sea and these other events that happen. But the last of these plagues that happen, of these ten plagues, is the death of the firstborn. From the wealthiest to the poorest, it did not matter inside of Egypt. And the only way that there could be an escape from this judgment by God was to take a spotless lamb and spread its blood on the doorpost and on the lintel of the house. 
And if God's people were in the house and this blood was applied, then God would pass over this house because of the blood. And it is only those that had, that had this blood on the doorpost that would not suffer any loss. And those that did not have the blood applied, they would suffer the wrath of God. It is only through the blood of the Lamb that they would be kept from the wrath of God. So the Jews, they, they call this the Passover, and they would celebrate it every year. They would celebrate the passing over of God's wrath. Now, there is over 1,400 years between Jesus and Moses. But what we will learn through the rest of Mark's gospel is that Moses and the Passover that happened over 1,400 years before this, it was a foreshadowing of what Jesus was going to accomplish once and for all. With people coming into Jerusalem, the, the city of Jerusalem during Passover, it would swell to about three times its normal size. And every place that you would try to find to stay, it would be filled up quickly. And what we see from verse 11 is that Jesus and the twelve, they do not stay in Jerusalem, but they stay in Bethany. And Bethany is just outside of Jerusalem, about two miles, uh, just to the east. And you have to travel up the Mount of Olives in order to get there. So in order to get to Jerusalem, you would have to walk down through Bethphage and then down the Mount of Olives and then cross the Kidron Valley and then back up a hillside where it would put you right at the Temple Mount. And today, if you were to, to travel this path, uh, you would not be able to enter the city right there uh, at that place because they walled in that gate that is there. And that happened uh, several hundreds of years ago by the Muslims. But before Jesus would enter into Jerusalem, there's something, I think, very strange that is recorded for us here and is recorded in all four of the Gospels, and that is that Jesus orders to his disciples to retrieve a colt. And one of the other authors tells us that it's the colt of a donkey. And why do they do this? Well, it's for Jesus to ride into Jerusalem on. Now, why is this so strange? Well, one, one reason is being that this is the only time that Jesus has been recorded to ride upon an animal. He, he was recorded in riding in a boat at some point, again across the Sea of Galilee several times, but he has never been riding upon an animal until now. Jesus walked everywhere that he went, but that is not the case here. Another reason why this is strange is because this would not be the choice of beasts, a a rival king would use to ride it in on if he planned on conquering his foes. In many traditional kingdoms in Southeast Asia, kings, they were carried in by white elephants, and this demonstrated their, their power, their authority, their wealth. Um, in, um, in history as well, Alexander the Great, he rode upon his famous horse, one of the most famous horses throughout history, Bucephalus, whom no one could tame except Alexander, and that made for the, kind of the greatness of the horse and also of Alexander and, the, and his ability. Now, Jesus tells his disciples to go into a village and bring back this cult whom no one had ever sat. Alexander the Great, he was this one that only him, uh, only he was the one that was able to tame his horse. And now Jesus is requesting a cult that no one else had tamed. No one else had ridden this animal. 
And now he's going to write it down a, a mount, a hillside, into Jerusalem. Now, if we think about this, this doesn't really seem like a wise move, a great marketing tactic to use. Uh, choosing a very unreliable animal to come down this hillside, one that has never been ridden, one that has never been broken in. This doesn't seem like a very wise move unless Jesus is the one who is in control of all things. Now, we have seen that Jesus has been in control of the wind and the waves. He has been in control over sickness, over blindness, over physical deformities, and even death. Throughout Mark's gospel, we have witnessed the authority of Jesus being displayed over not only the seen things of this world, but also over the unseen spiritual things of this world, namely the demonic. For Jesus to ride upon this colt without any issue is really a non-issue for the one who is essentially in, uh, in control of all created things. Paul writes in Colossians chapter 1, verse 15 through 17, he says, he is the image of the invisible God, meaning Jesus, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Jesus is over all and in control of all things, even this little donkey that has never been ridden, even this little donkey that has not been broken in by anybody, and there was really no need for it to be broken in because it knew its creator. Jesus' transportation into Jerusalem is very unusual because it doesn't really fit the profile of a conquering king. It doesn't really fit the, the expectation of people and what they would think of for their king, for their savior. And again, these people that are, are following Jesus, they have this expectation that he will overthrow the Roman authorities. He will reestablish Israel as a sovereign nation. Their expectations, they will not be met, but the plan of God will be accomplished. The plan that God has to bring freedom. The plan that God has to overthrow the authorities it will not be detoured. Now, I've thought a lot about this, this little donkey in recent years, and uh, maybe, maybe too much even about this little donkey, but one of my thoughts is that this colt was prepared for Jesus to ride on long before Jesus shows up in Bethany. Now, I don't mean that Jesus, you know, called ahead to the, the rented donkey and reserved this animal. Uh, I, you know, I don't think he called in and, and asked for uh, a ride into Jerusalem from Bethany, asking uh, you know, the, the person there, uh, what kind of options do you have? And they said, well, you know, we have this old, reliable donkey that uh, has a lot of miles on it, but it's, it's very sturdy. It will get you where you need to go. And I'm sure Jesus wasn't like, well, no, I'm looking for something a little newer, has that fresh donkey smell to it. This is, I don't think, the case at all of what was happening and what I mean by that this donkey was part of um, the, the plan of God. And the plan that I believe that was here was before the foundation of the world. Now, why do I say that? Well, I, I would say we could use some terms like 
consequential logic or cosmic reverse engineering to think about this. So, so let's just think about this for just for a second. This colt would have, have to be old enough for someone to ride on it, but just at the perfect age in which no one had ridden on it yet. So the colt had to be born at, a, at exactly the right time in order for Jesus to use it on this day at this exact time in history. And again, without anybody have, set, have been sitting upon this donkey, riding on this donkey before this. Which then means that the parents of this colt had to have been in the exact place and time that they needed to be in order for this colt to be at this place and time, the exact time that it needed to be there. Now, we can then, I think, backtrace this cult's existence to Noah and the Ark, and I would say even farther back to creation, and then even to the eternal plan of God. This little donkey's life was created for this purpose, and I would say this cosmic purpose, which was to carry the King of Kings into Jerusalem on this very day, in this very way. It seems to be from the text that there was no premeditation on the disciples' part about the situation. I find it extremely improbable that Jesus had sent word ahead to reserve this cult for this purpose. I believe what we are seeing here is an example of the supernatural knowledge and power of Jesus. Not only do we have the cult being ready at this, at this exact point in time, but we also have in this story the people who ask the question of the disciples about what they're doing. Now, Jesus told his disciples earlier in verse 3, we'll see that uh, if they were asked what, what they're doing, that this was supposed to be the response in verse 3. The Lord has need of it, and we'll send it back here immediately. Now, let's just put ourselves into this kind of scenario, this kind of position today. Let's just compare this to, say, you're working at a new car lot, and you have this, this uh, shipment of new Ford Mustangs pulling into the lot on the delivery truck, and they're rolling off of the truck, and someone walks up and just jumps in the car and starts it up and get re- gets ready to drive off with it, and what are you going to ask? What are you doing? And uh, if they responded with this, I think we would probably have a problem if they would say, well, the Lord has need of it, but I'll bring it back. What are you going to say to this person? You're probably not going to say, oh, well, go right ahead. You know, go ahead. Just bring it back whenever you're done with it. Uh, no, more than likely, you're going to tell them to get out of the car, that you're going to call the police, you're, or maybe you're just a really good salesman, you're going to sell them the car. I think we see the power of God in this moment in what happens with these disciples and this cult and, and taking it with them? I think we see the power of God moving in the hearts and the minds of these people asking this question. Because why else would you allow someone just to walk off with something so valuable? And if there wasn't any, any prearrangement that was made here, why would this be the case? I, I don't think any of us would act in this way unless there was something bigger taking place and changing the way that we think, the way that we feel in this moment. And I think this is what's happening here with this donkey. If you look there in verse 7 and verse 8, it says, And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. 
And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. Well, in 2 Kings chapter 9, we're told that the spreading of garments under a person was a recognition of royal dignity. This crowd of people was saying with their possessions that Jesus was a king. I'm sure this was quite a sight to see. And what is really interesting is if you stand on the Mount of Olives and, and you, uh, you look across to the Temple Mount, you can clearly see the, where the temple would have been. You can clearly see anybody and everybody that would be coming in and out of the city and vice versa. So if you were at the Temple Mount and you were looking to the hillside of the Mount of Olives, you were watching this crowd of people coming down as they're ahead of and following this, this guy riding on this little donkey and people throwing branches in front of the donkey and their clothes in front of the donkey as he's riding down. I'm sure that you would have a lot of questions to ask and you would be very much aware of what was, what was happening. This was a very public moment. And through Jesus' ministry, he did a lot of public ministry. But he, he has never done anything like this. This is a very public act. And I'm sure that this was not unnoticed by really almost everybody in the city. I'm sure it was not unnoticed by the Jewish leaders. It was not unnoticed by the Roman authorities. And obviously this crowd of people moving along with Jesus, they would have been part of spreading the word quickly about what had taken place, what was going on, who Jesus was. And as, again, the city had swollen to three times the size, I'm sure word was still spreading quite quickly throughout it. So not only was this crowd throwing their coats in front of Jesus and branches in front of Jesus, but they were also shouting something that was quite unique. In verses 9 to 10, it says, And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Hosanna, this word. It literally means, save I pray. This word is drawn from one of the Psalms, Psalm 118, verses 25 and 26, where it says, save us, we pray, O Lord, O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. Now, this psalm is part of the Egyptian Hallel of the Psalter, and which is a, a comprising of psalms that were written for the remembrance of what God had done in leading his people out of Egypt. This is why it has that, that title of Egyptian Hallel. Now, these psalms... They were sung during the, the festival of the Passover, also during Pentecost and the tabernacles and dedication. So this shouting, this singing, this chanting that was happening, this is a very familiar thing to the Jewish people. It, have been, it was very familiar to what they had known and what they had done for, for hundreds of years, but it would be very much out of character. And very unusual for them to be shouting this for any teacher, for any rabbi, for any leader. This is truly a very unique moment, what is happening. Not only Jesus riding in on this little donkey, displaying the humility of who he is, and, and what really we have learned through, the first, through chapter 10 earlier of what humility actually looks like. 
And Jesus is, again, demonstrating that by writing this little cult, but also this unique moment of people chanting Jesus as the Messiah. He is this one that has come to save. He is this one that Psalm 118 is talking about. He, he has come. This is such a unique moment in what's happening here physically and what is happening into the voices of these people. Notice that these people are saying that Jesus is coming in the kingdom of David. Coming in the kingdom of David. In verse 10 it says that. Meaning that Jesus is the fulfillment of the promise that was given to David that there would be one that would sit upon his throne forever. This is the promise given to David. Now connect this back to last week and the end of chapter 10 as we saw blind Bartimaeus. And in the story of blind Bartimaeus, he cries out to Jesus as the crowd is passing him by. He cries out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Now, what we have in Mark's record between, I think, the end of chapter 10, here into chapter 11, I think what we have is Mark trying to make a point again, make a point to those that are reading this, that are hearing this, that Jesus, Jesus is the son of of David. He is fulfilling what the scriptures scriptures have prophesied about him, being the one that sits upon the throne of David. Now, there's a, a lot of scriptures, a lot of prophecies about Jesus, a lot of ones that indicate who the Messiah is and what he would look like, what he would do. And so let me just kind of quickly give you just a, a few this morning to uh, for you to go back and look at uh, later this week. One of those is Second Samuel chapter seven, verses twelve through sixteen. Prophet Isaiah writes in chapter nine, verses one through seven, and then later in chapter eleven, verses one through ten. Jeremiah writes in chapter twenty-three, verses five through eight. Then Ezekiel chapter thirty-four, verses twenty-three and twenty-four. Then we have Micah chapter five, verses two through four. And again, what we see through, again, just the, the tip of the iceberg of all these prophecies about Jesus is that Jesus is fulfilling what these prophecies were talking about. Jesus is the son of David. He is Hosanna. And though these prophecies were being fulfilled, they were not being fulfilled in the way that, again, these people had hoped or had expected. Again, their, their expectation was focused around physical freedom. It was focused around physical things, physical blessings, physical healings. They were consumed with the physical. But what Jesus was going to do, what he was going to accomplish, it was not physical. Even though he will suffer greatly physically. Well, let me show you from the New Testament what Jesus does accomplish. What did the New Testament writers and authors tell us Jesus accomplishes. Let me take you to John's gospel, first of all. John chapter 1, in verses 9 through 13. John chapter 1, verse 9, says, The true light, which gives light to everyone, again, referring to Jesus, has come into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. 
who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Then John later writes, records Jesus speaking in chapter 3, verses 16 through 18. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Then John also records in chapter 14, verses 6 and 7, that Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. And then in the book of Acts, chapter 4, verse 12, it says, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And Paul writes in 1 Timothy, chapter 2, verses 5 and 6, For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. And Paul also writes in Romans chapter 10, verses 9 through 11. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. The New Testament, it teaches us that Jesus died in the place of sinners. Sinners like you and like me. And if I or if you are going to escape the wrath of God, you must come under the new covenant that was established by Jesus Christ in his death. His covenant of grace is the only way in which you can be saved from an eternal hell where we would suffer for all of eternity under the wrath of a holy and just God. It is only by this blood that a passing over could happen. It is only by this lamb, this spotless lamb of God, the perfect Jesus that his blood being applied to us, that we would be preserved, we would be saved, we would be kept from God's wrath. Hosanna is what we should shout today. It should be, Lord, save, I pray. This is the word that we proclaim as Christians. This is the word that maybe you need to proclaim today if you are an unbeliever. To cry out, Lord, save, I pray. And the last verse that we have here this morning, verse 11, it says, And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. When he had looked around at everything, it was already late. He went out to Bethany with the twelve. Now there's another prophecy that kind of hovers over this whole moment with Jesus and as he enters into Jerusalem and it's the, the prophecy of Malachi chapter 3 
Notice that Jesus not only enters Jerusalem, but it tells us here that he enters the temple as well. In Malachi chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, it says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. Speaking of John the Baptist. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he, this Messiah, this Hosanna, for he is like a refiner's fire and like a fuller's soap. Jesus comes to bring a cleansing, a cleansing of the filth that has covered humanity and a a cleansing to what has covered Jerusalem, what has covered his temple. Jesus will start his work of cleansing in the temple as what we will see next week in chapter, in chapter 11, starting in verse 12, going through verse 25. And then we will see Jesus finish his cleansing work. And he will finish that cleansing work on the cross where he will provide a cleansing for his people. This work will not make sense to his followers will not make a lot of sense to those that have maybe called out Hosanna. will not make sense to even these, these 12 disciples as all of them will run away and, and hide. And one even betray him and sell him out. But all things, they will become clear when Jesus rises from the grave three days later. All, all of what has happened here with Jesus coming to to Jerusalem and this triumphal entry and what's being said about Jesus, what he has said about himself, all these things become abundantly clear in the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus is the one that the world has been waiting for. He is the one that the world needs to have their sins removed from their account. There is no other one. There's no other covenant. There's no other lamb. There's no other sacrifice there, there is nothing else, no one else, that can remove the filth of sin. It is only through Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, Hosanna. Have you trusted in his sacrifice for your sin? Have you given your life to him? Christian, are you sharing this good news with others? Are you telling them that Hosanna has come into the world? That he can save if they would call upon his name? If they would call out to him? Have you explained the, the goodness of the gospel? That it's, a, it's available to all that would call upon Jesus as their savior. As we close this morning, let's just ask ourselves a couple questions in a time of reflection. Thinking about... Thinking about this story and thinking about our expectations, what expectations do you have of Jesus? Are your expectations biblical? Are they ones that really fit into who Jesus is and what Jesus accomplished, what he is doing, what he can do? What expectations do you have of him? Are they biblical ones? Then another question, if Jesus is in such control of all things, are you allowing him to be in control over your life? If Jesus is in control of the smallest of particles, 
biggest of things in all of the galaxy, in all of the world, in all of the universe, why would you not allow him to be in control over your life? Why would you be in rebellion to him in any way? Let's spend just a few moments in reflection.